thank you, Philip and Taryn, for taking the time out of your schedule to be part of my little pet project. So I don't know if you'd like to maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and then give a brief overview of what it is that you do. Okay, so I'll start off. My name is Philip Jones. I started off my working life in the emergency services as a medic. I then moved into the, the safety industry. Obviously, the natural progression is such that you, you, you're going to want to prevent the accidents from happening before they do. And so we got into the safety industry 15 years ago now. We progressed on from the safety industry, grew our qualifications, grew our, our professional accreditation. I am currently a member of the South African Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. Uh, Sayosh. I am a member of the International Association of Emergency Managers. I am an associate member of the Disaster Management Institute of Southern Africa. I do hold <laughs> numerous qualifications through the various different fields. So obviously from a safety standpoint, we have a, a diploma in, in workplace health and safety in Australia. We have professional certificates from uh, OSHA in, in the US. We are currently working on a an international uh, environmental diploma uh, in the UK. We have emergency management diplomas through uh, the Australia. Um, we have a, a diploma in business management in Australia. Jeez. And then we have all of the uh, federal emergency management agency programs uh, in the US. Yeah, so, yeah. like I said, there, there's a lot of discussion that can go into that. But uh, I think <laughs> from, from a, a time point of view, <laughs> you talk about that. Oh, well, you've listed all your qualifications and we've come to the end of the podcast. So thank you. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> so I think, you know, in the greater scheme of things, for me, I mean, one of the big things was that starting out my career in the emergency services, you run day in and day out and see life at its worst, if you want to call it that. And, and like, like I mentioned earlier, it's the natural progression is you want to prevent that from happening. And, and that's that's how, how it grew from, from the emergency services into the safety field, into the preventative side. And then and then we grow naturally into the ISO side to, to actually grow the brand as, as, as an international. That's my natural progression. And Taryn, uh, how does she fit in? Because obviously she's your, your wife and business partner. So how does she fit in? I would assume she also has some kind of background in a similar field. Uh, yeah, Megan, um, basically my original qualification coming out of school was a national certificate in field guiding. So I started out more in the environmental field. Growing up as a kid, I always loved being involved in the medical side, uh, so the emergency management um, sector. But unfortunately, my mom was not too keen on the blood and gore and, and the, <laughs> the likes thereof. She said, Aaron, you're not going to go and study that. And yeah, one of my other passions, like I said, is, is the environmental management side and animals and things. So I actually went into field guiding. And then during the qualification of field guiding, one of the requirements is that over and above the firearm handling and stuff, we needed to do a certificate in first aid, obviously, because being in the bush in the middle of nowhere, we have very limited resources available to us. So one of the requirements is first aid. Basically, just followed on from, from the level one first aid, um, I then finished my environmental management certificate in field guiding. I then went straight into the medical 
side of things. So I went and did my basic ambulance course with the company that I did my first aid training with. Yeah, that was basically where I met Philip was actually doing my first aid course. From there, we pretty much kind of decided to start our own business together. And yeah, it progressed from there. We did quite a bit of work offsite, a lot of the casino-based environments. So we did the health and safety there. Uh, We did the medical management side of things there. And then we decided one day we'd actually stop making everybody else rich and give it a shot for ourselves and start our own business. Yeah. And that is what we did. Awesome. So now you mentioned ISO. So most people have heard of occupational health and safety or disaster management or quality management or environmental management, but not many people seem to be aware that uh, there are international standards that they should be aligned to. So these are called the ISO standards and they can be quite confusing due to their complexities. So could you maybe explain in layman's terms what ISO actually is and why it is so important for business? Okay, okay. so I'm going to take this one. A little bit of uh, history and background. ISO as an organization is actually the International Organization for Standardization. The term ISO actually comes from the Greek word ISOS, meaning equal. Um, So it's actually not an abbreviation, as many people think. It's an organization actually based in Geneva, Switzerland. Currently, as we're sitting here right now, there are 23,477 ISO standards. (laughs) So, (laughs) okay, we'll circle back to that and how we start as a small business. Like, where do you even start? But I don't want to interrupt the the definition. (laughs) The history lesson. The history lesson. (laughs) No, that's exactly it. So, ISO as an organization was founded in 1946, and they're currently sitting with 165 member nations, which means that there are 165 bodies like our SABS, or SANS as it's now called, that adopts ISO standards. So to give you a bit of an idea how that works, obviously SABS, or the, the former SABS, adopts an ISO standard, brings it into South Africa, and creates the ISO standard for use in South Africa. So the term of, of ISO being International Organization for Standardization is exactly that, is that these ISO standards are recognized in 165 countries. I, I, I don't know about you, but I can't think of uh, it being more international than that. If it's part of SABS or, or SANS, like you say, that how come this is not more standardized? Is it just kind of a lack of education in the business community or is it just a case of apathy among business owners? I mean, failure to comply with health, safety and environmental legislation kind of carries rather hefty fines. I think uh, of up to 10 million rand um, and sometimes even jail time. So how come the system and related standard uh, safety standards are not more widely understood and implemented? From, from my standpoint, I think one of the big things that, that I need to just pause there for two seconds and mention is that of the 27, 24,000-odd standards that we have, we as Jones Consulting are responsible for, for six of those standards. So the quality management, ISO 9000, the ISO standard for environmental management, which is ISO 14,000, and then the health and safety, which is ISO uh, 45001, which 
before, I want to say formerly its predecessor was OSHA's 18001. And now that's maybe a term that's been thrown around quite a bit. Now, in terms of ISO being widely adopted, ISO standards, the adoption of ISO standards is still a voluntary uh, application. So th there's no specific requirement except for two examples. And I'm going to come to that in a couple of seconds. But ISO standards as a whole are voluntary. It allows you to do business overseas. It allows you to interact on a different level. And, and that's the concept behind it. If you are able to standardize your business processes on an international level, then it eradicates this old concept of, of third world countries or made in X country equals rubbish. You know, you know those type of concepts that, that historically exist. And ISO levels the playing field. That, that's the concept behind it. Yes, there are companies that, that need a bit of the industry leveling. If we are trying to compete on the electronics side with, let's say, China, it's not going to happen. I mean, China will outstrip us solely based on their pricing. But in terms of quality, we can then say, okay, but this is the way forward. And and it depends on who you're going to be supplying. It depends on a, a variety of number think a number of things. And I think the big thing is in terms of adoption of it, it is really really difficult to say everyone must adopt it because of the fact that it's voluntary. It is also not the cheapest thing to get certified in. I mean, to get certified in ISO, you're probably looking in the regions of forty to one hundred and fifty thousand rand so so it's not a cheap exercise yeah but it definitely has its rewards um its return on investment is exponential especially if you're doing cross-border work and, and and engaging on that specific level but now to circle back to to what i mentioned a bit earlier there's two instances where our former department of labor now the department of employment and labor published little gazettes that were i want to say almost hidden from the public eye they are incredibly unknown so much so that the one gazette was published back in 2005 so we've had it for for better part of 15 years and in very few companies are aware of it and in that gazette it actually mentions that any company in the metal industries what we call the class 13 industries according to the coit act the yeah. compensation for occupational injuries and diseases act anyone in the class 13 metal industry so if it's a panel beater a scrapyard heavy engineering petrol stations Anyone working with metal must actually have a health and safety policy in place that manages how health and safety takes place, how they protect the employees in their specific workplace during their business hours. And that needs to be in line with the OSHA's 18001 standard. Okay. Uh, again, I mentioned OSHA's 18,000 moved, uh, moved across to the ISO 45,001 back end of 2018, October 2018. So that's that's quite a, a pertinent standard, uh, a pertinent gazette, should I say, in that very few people are made aware of that. Uh, very few people actually know that this exists. And when they get a knock on the door from the Department of uh, Employment and Labor, they, they I want to say, caught with their pants down and they they 
simply just don't know. Now, the Department of Employment and Labor pulled another rabbit out the hat back in 2015 and did exactly the same thing, but with the healthcare industries, what we call Section 21 companies. Now, this is anything from a veterinary through to a doctor's uh, rooms, through to medical devices, through to pharmaceuticals. Thank you. Yeah. So, so anything in that setting needs to, again, look at the biological hazards, look at how they, uh, their business processes take place, and again, using the OSHA's 18001 standard as a guideline going forward. That's two industries where I want to say ISO is a, is a non-negotiable. Not having that will get you into trouble. It will potentially land you with a 100,000 rand fine. And so from that point of view, it is, it's a bit of a tricky one that people need to be aware. They haven't been made aware. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a sad state of affairs. So one, one of the other big components that, that a lot of people are actually, I mean, I think about our client base, for instance, we've had a number of our clients because they have had a supplier audit from a company that is ISO certified. And so in these circumstances, we like to say ISO is actually very similar to the BE concepts that we have here in South Africa, mm. where if you want to be ISO certified, you need to buy from someone that is either ISO certified or at least has control mechanisms in place that are reasonably similar to ISO. And so obviously the knock-on effect is that if you want to supply your services or products to someone that is ISO certified, they're going to ask you for either a certificate or proof of that such a system exists. And it, it becomes a very tricky situation because a lot of, if you, if you think back to our, our, our primary producers and, and moving all the way through the, the actual chain, the consumer chain, we often have small individuals that are involved in this, two, three-man teams that are, that are doing specific jobs. And, and it does actually become a bit of a, a nasty situation where they, where a larger organization that is ISO certified says, show me how you ensure the quality or the, the safety of your staff or, or that you're not doing damage to the environment. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a big component. Now, if I understand ISO correctly, and you can please stop me if I'm wrong, just to build on your last point. I was chatting to somebody who used to work in the nuclear sector and they became... ISO certified. They manufactured medical isotopes, so your cancer treatments and so on. They had to buy the necessary, I don't even know what they called in the medical industry, like ingredients from, from a supplier who was ISO certified. They then manufactured and they would then distribute to hospitals who would then distribute to the necessary places. Am I correct to say that that entire chain from the ingredients, for lack of a better term, to what the hospitals ended up doing with the spent product, all of that has to follow the ISO standard for health and safety and environmental and so on. Otherwise, the manufacturing plant could lose its ISO certification. Uh, so if somewhere along that line, someone chucked a piece of nuclear waste into the fault, the manufacturing agent, even though they were not complicit in that, that is 
still part of their chain and they can be held responsible. Am I understanding that correctly? From an ISO standpoint, it really becomes a very interesting discussion around that. So from the medical devices, for instance, that's ISO 13485. That relates to medical devices for, for use in, in the healthcare setting. Now, obviously, if you, you're doing isotopes, I'm, I must be honest, I'm not 100% sure what the ISO standard is for medical grade isotopes, but from an ISO 14000 environmental management point of view, yes, from the actual procurement of your ingredients up to the, the end of the life cycle would most definitely be a, a consideration in the ISO standard. So it's not necessarily the responsibility of the manufacturer unless it is contractually stated as such. So that's the big com component here is that we need to make sure that whatever the supplier is required to do, we comply with whatever the manufacturer is required to do, we are complying with. And whatever the, the end user, in this case, the hospitals or, or whatever the story is, they are compliant with. And then obviously the waste disposal agency, who's who's disposing of it, they need to manage it in, in the necessary manner. So the, the term that we use from an environmental standpoint is what we call cradle to the grave. Um, I know it's a very uh, cliche term but the, the simple <laughs> concept is that we need to make sure that at any point that we are complying to what we say we are going to do and any contractual obligations but then we also have our environmental obligations in terms of national and international law so ISO does not override national law it does not override or replace anything along that line uh, that line it incorporates it yeah. everything that we're required to do in terms of the national law must be identified and catered for in the um, ISO standard applicable, in the ISO system. And that's a very big part of, of what we do. We identify the appropriate legislation and then exceed the requirements on that. And that, that's basically what ISO is all about. So nuclear is kind of like a hectic thing. So let's let's look at a slightly watered down example of a car manufacturer. So you are Jones Consulting car manufacturers. You you construct the car, but you have to buy your braking system from Megan Darcy brake manufacturers. We're both ISO standards and we've got a contractual agreement. So now that car rolls off the production line and it's in an accident because the brakes failed. Who along that line then is, if you can say, at fault? Who would actually sit with the blame in terms of the lack of safety in that final product? If I manufacture a car and I am manufacturing it to X standard, I have my processes catalogued, I have all of this, and my client X, say, B Auto Sales wants X car, Cool, no problem. I will provide him with that. If the brakes don't meet that requirement, then that's my fault. If I'm buying brakes from 20 other suppliers, it's still my fault because mm. I did not ensure that the products that I am supplying to my end client is compliant. But that being said, the ramifications onto the small business that supplied the brakes will most definitely be there as well. Because obviously, if um, me as the manufacturer am getting sued or being held as uh, criminally liable for something along those lines, 
I'm going to turn around and say, but what happened to you? And then I will follow that chain all the way down into your systems and, and start looking at, and I can then take the necessary action against you, let's say you, because you supplied those breaks to me. Yeah. So please don't assume that the buck stops with, with me. That's not the case. It will flow all the way down to the last little bolt that you bought from a supplier to put your brakes together to put into my car. Is there a services standard as well? Because now we've been talking about product specific. So I would imagine that ISO has got a services standard as well when, you know, it's an intangible product. Like me as a writer, is there a, a an ISO level for the service industry to make sure that there's a certain, like you say, a level playing field across the services industry? So ISO 9001 is all about quality management. So if we take two seconds just to talk about what what 9001, the quality management systems is all about. Um, If we look at ISO 9001, it is all about repeatability. Can we provide exactly what the client asked for time and time and time again? So that's what it's all about. Now, ISO 9001 was updated in 2015. And historically, the ISO 9000 series was product orientated with the design components and a lot of uh, focus on the actual, how do I say this, on, on the actual product of uh, that's going to be delivered. Yeah. Now in 2015, they've shifted that, that we are actually seeing specific references to service-based entities, making sure the ability of a service-based entity can repeat the the required service delivery to their client over and over again. So coming to you as, as as a writer, would you be able to document what your client wants? If you can document what your client wants, then are you able to deliver on what your client wants? over and over and over again. So let's say, for instance, your client wants a story on um, the banking sector in Angola. Good Lord, how's that for an example? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Off the top of your head, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Tell me about it. Um, So are you able to provide week in, week after week after week, a new article that's relevant to what the client wants to meet, let's say, a 30-page brief, are you able to write that 30 pages or one week you write 30 pages, the next week you write five, then the week after that you write 15, and then the week after that you find a really cool uh, scandal and then you write 200 pages. Yeah, That's what we're trying to eliminate. We want 30 pages every week as per the client's request. Mm. And is it of the right caliber? Does it meet the requirements? Okay. And that's from an ISO 9000 point of view. But now, don't forget, we still, uh, and again, I'm talking mainly to to the 9000 quality, the the 14,000 environmental, and the the 45,000 health and safety. So that's just the 9000. Obviously, in terms of the 14,000 standard, we need to see what happens if you're not doing this writing in an environmentally friendly manner? So how do you minimize your impact on the environment? Yeah. And that's a very big component as well. I mean, do you print 300 pages for a five-page writer? Do you print and then throw your toner cartridges into your back garden and bury it? Hmm. You know, bad example. Yeah. <laughs> you get what I'm trying to say there. 
the, the big thing is all about environmental awareness and looking at your process and saying, how can I do this in a way that it does not impact on the environment? Do you have to drive to a client to go and get their requirements where you could do it online? What is your carbon footprint with regards to that? Can you limit that? Do you use energy efficient light bulbs in your work area instead of old halogen globes or incandescent globes that use a lot more energy and, and are a lot hard, more harsh on the environment. These are concepts that come into play from an environmental standpoint on the ISO 14000 side. Okay. And then obviously we've got the ISO 45000, the health and safety components. Now that can rearrange everything from your emergency contingency. So if your laptop catches fire, where do you go? How do you deal with it? Are you working in an ergonomically friendly environment? Is your chair and your desk and your, your setup correct for your body type? I want to say type, but it's, it's your body dimensions. You know, are you exposed to any biological or chemical hazards? Have you got any uh, equipment in your area that can potentially uh, injure you? Have you serviced the fan that's cooling you while you're busy writing? Does mm. it pose a threat in terms of of causing a fire because it's not electrically compliant. Have you uh, boppered the wires together a little bit <laughs> and uh, uh, stuck it together with some chewing gum? Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that's the aspect that, that their standards are similar, but they each have their own niche, their, their own area that they talk to. And it's very important to understand how that works. And coming back to your, your example of the car, from a quality standpoint, yes, there is that whole flow through. From an environmental standpoint, you supplying me brakes, those brakes are coated in a lead-based paint. When that car is scrapped after it's been in an accident, are you liable for the lead-based paint on the brake calipers? Or you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, yeah. all these, all these, uh, the different suites, if you will, especially these three, the 9,000, 14,000, and 45,001, they kind of all interlinked. That, you wouldn't, that, you exactly. wouldn't necessarily just have one. You would look at implementing two or all three of them. That's actually spot on. We call it a, a, an HLA, a high level document, in that they all interlink. If you actually take the ISO 9001, 14001, and 45001 standards and you put them next to each other, they are literally carbon copies of one another for sh short of a couple of minor changes, obviously, mm. but they are almost identical. They require the control of records. They require certain aspects They re in terms of continuous improvements, review of the systems, auditing of the system to make sure you're achieving your objectives. They all require similar things. And again, that filters down into other standards as well. I mentioned 13485 from the medical devices. Yeah. We have the standard for the area nautical industry we have automotive standard and those are some of the big ones that tie in together it's it's quite a compo a complex system and a lot of people and and when i say a lot i'd say probably close to 70 percent of, of entities out there if they are looking to certify okay because remember it, it's not necessary that you certify you need to be compliant um, which means that you don't necessarily have to have that massive expenditure of the certification process yeah but if you do certify 
chances of you certifying in all three in what we call an integrated management system is, is pretty much a guarantee. Now, in terms of the implementation, it's not something that you kind of download an online document, tick a few boxes, and then your ISO. You know, it can take years because it's it's a, an entire process-driven system. It usually requires buy-in and a huge culture change throughout the organization. So in terms of getting certified, when do you as a as a small business need to start actually worrying about ISO standards and when does it start becoming necessary for you to investigate this because you want to expand so that, that's a brilliant question that that's legitimately a brilliant question and I think that that's on the tips of 90% of this uh, this country's tongues, at least those that have heard of ISO, yeah. <laughs> um, which is not many people, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so when does it become applicable? So I come back to our previous discussion about those two gazettes from the Department of Labor in 2005, the metal industries, and the uh, 2015, we have the uh, medical industries. That has instantly become applicable. If you are in any of those industries, Unfortunately, if you are a one-man job, if you're a 300-man job, it's, it's, it's applicable to you from the get-go. So from that point of view, it's a non-negotiable. Now, ISO standards as a whole tend to be voluntary. So you're only going to want to put a system in place if you want to. Okay, If you want to grow your business, if you want to do international business, if you want to level the playing field and prove that you have a decent product. I, I, I use the example, if I go onto Amazon or eBay and I look and see, I want to buy a cell phone charger. I see a cell phone charger from X country for $12. Cool, no problem. I see a cell phone charger from South Africa, for instance, for $20. We can associate X country with poor quality, okay? but South Africa doesn't actually feature that highly. So if I say, here's my cell phone charger, but here's an ISO certificate saying that it, it complies as well, which product would you buy? And and, and that, that's the concept, is that it's been so Certified. It's been proven that it's a, a product that is either environmentally friendly, and again, depending on the ISO standard, it's been proven to be either a quality product, it's been proven to be environmentally friendly, or uh, manufactured in a, a safe environment. So, in, in the greater scheme of things, you know, if someone can put an ISO 9001 certificate saying that their product is, is of a, a good quality, yeah. And, and it, please understand that it doesn't always equal that. It, it might be a cheaper product, but there are control mechanisms in place to ensure that it does what it says it does. So if this thing says it, it's going to put out 5 volts, you know it's not 5.1, it's not 5.2, it's 5 volts because that's what the document says. Yeah. And so from that point of view, there's, there are certain environments that most definitely you will have a, uh, a situation where people will look at the cost and say, yeah, okay, cool, I'll go for the cheapest one. But what happens when you need a mission critical uh, situation? What happens when that cell phone charger might be for an ambulance service and it might mean the difference between life and death? You know, th there's a lot of other components that, or, or aspects that you need to be thinking about um, from that. And yes, ISO, in a, in a short answer, ISO is voluntary. Unless you have a supplier 
that turns around to you and says, you will be ISO certified for me to buy from you, or you will have a, a system in place that is appropriate that I can audit to make sure that what you are supplying me is appropriate, then most of the time it's going to be a, a voluntary uh, implementation of that. Yeah. Um, and again, if you want to do international business, it's, it's, it's almost a, a standard requirement, an unspoken standard requirement. If you want to do business overseas, you have to prove that you are of a, of a decent standard. How do you as a consumer know whether a company is ISO certified? Because not every product ne is necessarily. I know, uh, for example, Toyota, the Prius is ISO certified and the factory that it's manufactured in and all the parts and, you know, its environmental impact further down the line when it's scrapped is, um, all of that is ISO, but that doesn't mean that all other Toyotas, other cars are ISO certified. So how do you as a consumer know whether, you know, without having to now, when you want to buy a cell phone charger, having to spend like three hours of research online, how, how can you tell whether something is ISO certified? Is, the, is there a quick way? Unfortunately, the short answer to that is no. It should be publicized. Now, again, an ISO certification in, in my mind is probably one of the, a company's biggest marketing assets. Being able to prove that you have an ISO certification should be front and center of, of a lot of the, the company's marketing. And so they will be putting it on their website, on their business cards, on their um, marketing material, anything like that. If you've got a brochure for the cell phone charger that's attached next to it on, on Amazon, then it, it, it will have the ISO logo or the ISO uh, term stating the standard that is compliant to or certified to, should I say. And, and so in the greater scheme of things, there is no guarantee that a company is certified, especially in this day and age. It's, it's a very, very tricky one in that ISO certification aren't centrally located. They are dependent on your certification body. And at the moment, we have numerous certification bodies. And to find out who the certification body is for a specific entity to see if a product is certified becomes really, really difficult. My, my advice is if you are looking at, at purchasing or you're looking at engaging with a, a certified body or a certified entity, ask them. That, that's, that's unfortunately the, the gist of it. Yeah. From an end user, uh, end consumer, it does become a bit laborious, definitely, but ask. Clipping back to the, the business aspect, where would a small business actually start if they want to look at putting ISO standards into practice? If they're wanting to implement a system or they, they have a requirement placed on them, there are a number of options uh, again and, and my first off advice is have a, a chat to a consultant like ourselves. A lot of people do not understand what it's about. They do not understand the implications in terms of cost, in terms of workflow, what it will do to their company in terms of how, how the, the, the company will evolve, what that actually involves. So speak to someone like ourselves. That's my first, first, first piece of advice. Mm. Don't necessarily engage with them from a, a long-term contract at this point for the simple thing that you need to understand. What are the options? What are the applicable standards? And what scope does your organization have within those standards? In the greater scheme of things, your consultant would be the one to guide you. And, and for all those listening, 
please do not be pushed into a hard cell. ISO is not something that you take lightly. Like I said, it is a voluntary standard in, in majority of the cases. And so you need to think about it. You need to think how does your organization want to grow with this? ISO themselves will not even sell you the standard. They will refer you to your national body. All right, so now you have got one of the most complex products slash services out of anyone I have probably ever met. Not only is the service or the product itself not completely understood, but implementing an ISO system, it often requires, like I said earlier, an entire culture change within a company, which is no easy undertaking and can take years to fully implement. So I'd imagine that many of your customers actually approach you as they've already bought into the system and they want to implement it. Is there kind of a cold call aspect to your business? Do you rely on like Google searches and, and all those fun, uh, fancy digital marketing uh, type of thing? How do you make sure your pipeline is always full in terms of client base? As a kind of add on to that question, how do you work around objections or apathy to what it is that you offer? So how do you communicate your value effectively enough so that it turns into a sale now you've mentioned you know people mustn't let themselves be bullied into a hard sell so you've you've got a really difficult job in terms of selling your value and converting that into a sale without actually pushing a hard sale because it's a voluntary thing. Okay, to answer your question, in terms of the cold call aspect, the majority of our clients is all about that word of mouth marketing. We have a number of clients that are investigating a, a an ISO standard or system. They've been asked by one of their suppliers to, to prove that they are ISO compliant. And, and most of the time, that supplier will turn around and say, okay, but here's my uh, business card of the guys that we use. So that word of mouth marketing is, is quite a big component for us. We do also try and do, uh, I want to call it an, an awareness campaign. It's, we're just trying to get people to understand what ISO is. We, we try and educate people about the, the concept behind ISO, how it applies to their business, how it would work in their environment. We then get some, some follow-ons from that. And, and mainly you find that those are people investigating it from a, a point of view that they've been required by the Department of Labor to get compliant as well. They will start asking the right, right questions there and approach us. In terms of filling up your pipeline, it, it really becomes tricky. There are often times where our pipeline is not full. It, it is not not the easiest sell in the world. Like you mentioned earlier, like we spoke about, it is is not the easiest thing to implement. It is not the easiest thing to, to manage. And, and one of, I want to say, our unique selling points for, from, from our side and from what we offer our clients is that we are an outsourced department in that we will manage as much of that process as we possibly can, short of the physical inspection of the services or products. We, we manage the supplier audits. We manage all of those components that normally would require someone to be employed to do such a role yeah. or, or take someone a significant amount of time of their normal day to actually do. So from that point of view, it's apathy. The objections is all about time and money. And we offer our services at a, at a very competitive rate. We are often told that we under underprice ourselves. It's something that we see value in it. We would like 
every company in the world to be ISO certified. If we can help a small business, then that's cool. Then we can get them compliant, we can get them sorted. And so the apathy and the objections will normally come around, do I have the time? Do I have the money? We try to address both of those by saying, we will manage the process for you. And we will manage funds from a point of view that we are not going to charge you an arm and a leg for it. The arm and a leg normally comes from the actual certification process. So we do the implementation. Obviously, we can't audit or certify our own work. So we'll bring in a certification body for that purpose. How have you been able to stand out from the crowd? Because obviously now COVID-19 has changed the business landscape quite drastically. So standing out is more important than ever. So how do you differentiate your business? I think one of the big things is is definitely price. Um, It's not the be-all. We are definitely... I mean, we, we did a, a bit of a market analysis and we, we are quite substantially cheaper than a lot of people out there. That doesn't mean that it's a it's a, an inferior product or service. We want to get as many people ISO certified. And if we need to have a little bit of a reduced rate, then so be it. It's not that we are saying, oh, no, um, I'm, I'm going to work for free. Please be under no misconceptions. Yeah. Um, that, that would be corporate suicide. And so in the, in the greater scheme of things, Yes, we, we do offer a, a, a more affordable service to allow companies to get compliant. That's what it boils down to. In terms of other differentiating factors is that if I say ISO, 99% of the people out there are thinking 30 files worth of printed pages and then I have to carry a clipboard around with me and wear a lot, white lab coat and all of this, uh, this nonsense. T- tell me you didn't visualize that. Well, I, I didn't imagine the white lab coat, but I did imagine sitting in audit for the rest of my life. That's it. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and that's unfortunately a big misnomer. We've taken this a step further and, and specifically now with the, the, the COVID, it's, it's given us an opportunity to grow even further. We afford our clients the, the opportunity to take it as electronic as humanly possible in that record creation is done online. So we have electronic signatures all the way through. We have records in terms of inspections. It's it's populating all of our documents electronically. One of our, our unique selling points is that electronic access, that, that portal that we create for our clients that allows them to engage with the system not through a, a mountain of paperwork having to flip through and find the right form and fill it out and then send it in triplicate to X, Y, and Z. And no, 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 no. As soon as that starts getting time odorous, it's, it's uh, going to be a nasty situation to try and implement a system like that. And so we make it simple for them. We manage the system for them. And, and we try and differentiate by making it an easy system to implement. So basically you're taking the, the legwork out. That, that's exactly it. And, and I come back to what I said earlier is that we are an outsourced chic department, safety, health, environmental and quality. Yeah. That, that, that's the concept behind it. And, and it, it's true. I mean, if there is a, an incident, you phone us. If there is a problem, you phone us. If you have an audit, phone us. <laughs> That's what it boils down to. Find us or email us. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Or WhatsApp for that matter. We've got various different electronic platforms. Yeah, uh, Facebook, direct messaging, Instagram. That too. You yep. can send a TikTok video. All of them. <laughs> <laughs>
because of the variety of clients that we actually deal with, our primary point of contact is that portal that we create for our clients. Mm. But obviously, if we have someone out on the road, um, we have a WhatsApp service for them. So if, let's say, for instance, they get involved in a bumper bashing, we need to know about that from, from a system point of view to make sure that we address it correctly, that the appropriate response takes place, and the appropriate people are notified about the situation. And if there's injuries, obviously, the, the, the necessary services are mobilized. Yeah. And so that's where a, a WhatsApp system comes in very nicely because you just simply type a little SMS, had a bumper bashing, here's my pin drop. And, and I've got it. Oh, technology is amazing. That, that, that's literally our, 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 our cornerstone of our business, yes. Um, we need to push technology more. ISO has historically been an arduous paper-based exercise. And I know for a fact that a lot of people are looking and saying, okay, but what about this? What about that? Let's look and see how, how things go. That's what the technology is all about. As the, old, as the joke goes, there's an app for that. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I'm going to refrain from commenting, but we have an app. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to end off with our quick fire round. Yes. Question one, define success. So success, that, that's a very interesting one. Success has various assets, uh, aspects. And I would say success is having a good life, that you have a good family, you're able to provide for your family, and you're able to be happy. I think if you are happy in the life that you have, if you live in a, a mansion or you live in a, a one-bedroom apartment, if you are happy and you are able to provide for yourself and your family, I say that you've hit success. Yeah. Is there a specific routine or thing that you do on a regular, if not daily basis, that you believe contributes to your success? Yeah. Is there anything specific? I'm going to say no. Um, the only thing that I would like to say, and, and this might sound a bit also kitsch, that, that contributes to the success of myself and, and my company is, is the young ladies that was formerly sitting next to me. I think Taryn has been uh, the rock of uh, my, uh, my success. I don't believe that I would have been able to do half of the things without her. I think in the greater scheme of things, I think that's uh, that's the success point uh, in my story. Awesome. <laughs> uh, it's always good to have someone that's got your back, if oh, not just from a support perspective, but just like bouncing ideas off and that kind of thing. I think too many people start a business and they don't have a really good support structure like that that yeah. is going to give them impartial advice or just be supportive you know a lot of people start a company and you kind of hear everyone else around the briar fire saying oh they're taking such a risk we really don't think it's going to succeed you know you, there's only so much that you can uh, do yourself you do need at least one person in your corner fighting on the same side as you fighting your fight yeah, yeah. no i agree with you wholly on that and i, I think you know for, for all intents and purposes taryn's got my back definitely not only is she my wife but um she's also a 50 percent shareholder in the company um, she handles the finance and compliance aspects. So she's responsible for our whole training academy. She, she's got a lot of responsibility on her shoulders. 
And yes, she mentioned in her in her uh, initial uh, discussion about uh, her qualifications and that. But as far as I'm concerned, Taryn matches me qualification for qualification and on a knowledge base, literally word for word, mm. except for the fact that she has a slightly, well, a lot broader um, understanding from the environmental standpoint, being from a, a game range or field guiding background. I mean, every year you have the Department of Environmental Affairs publishing a protected species list that says you can't chop down certain trees and then you need to chop down certain trees. And I mean, how many people out there on a construction site know which trees you can chop down and which ones you can't? Yeah, and, yeah. And she can. That's what it boils down to. And definitely, I agree. Her, our, our skills base complement each other very well. And yeah, we've been, like I said, doing this for, for a good number of years. Mm. And successfully, if you've lasted that yes. many years. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you've yeah. made it through lockdown, then uh, you're on the right track, I reckon. Well, let's just say we've, we've made it through lockdown and we've grown. Awesome. So, so that to me is a big thing. Uh, that's we've awesome. grown during lockdown. That's fantastic. That's a testament to obviously the uh, the products and the the knowledge base that you have. So yeah. Thank you. So question three: What do you do when you're not working on your business? Now again, another tricky one. When am I not working on my business? <laughs> now, and everyone says you you should have family time. You should shut down and all of that. In in the greater scheme of things, is that that's very few and far between. In that. I'm always looking for ways to improve it. But some of my hobbies include scuba diving. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that the hobby has actually now become part of our business. We've been branching out into the uh, dive industry. Mm. Um, so we're trying to assist in getting the dive industry a little bit more safety conscious. Uh, we've been working with a couple of big international organizations on that front. But yes, I, I really enjoy my scuba diving. And funny enough, that was actually uh, one of the, the hobbies that I got Taryn involved in as well. Uh, we, we quite enjoy our scuba diving. Uh, we actually, when the lockdown was lifted and we were able to travel, that was the first thing that we went and did. Oh, <laughs> I can imagine, like escape everything and just get into a different world, quite quite literally. That, that's it. That's exactly it. A nice quiet world. There's no cell phones. <laughs> you can't take cell phone calls down there. Yeah. Um, and and it, it's so serene and, and just relaxing yeah um, it's, it's call it your your meditation time yeah Nine, uh, 60 minutes at a time <laughs> it's interesting to hear that your hobby has kind of linked onto your business and i find that I, I can't speak for all other small business owners but speaking for myself i'm i work in a very creative field obviously being in in copywriting and content creation and a lot of my hobbies are actually aligned to that and I don't necessarily bring the hobby into the business, but I find that having creative hobbies actually feeds my creativity in my, my day job. So it's it's interesting how people's hobbies kind of become extensions of what they do to earn money. And I, I'm not I'm not one one of these people that say, well, you should turn your hobby into a business. I don't think that that's necessarily a very good idea and a very solid business plan. But um, if you've got something that kind of uh, allows you to break away from your business, but still is able to feed back into the business. That's obviously first prize. That's exactly it. So, I mean, like, like you mentioned, is that, you know, <laughs> if, if it's something you enjoy, then then cool. My only downside with that, and, and, and I've seen it on our side, is that we enjoyed scuba diving. We now turn it into a job. So now scuba diving 
has to take in a different aspect to being seen as uh, to, to be relaxing to us, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I do beer brewing and everyone's kind of like, oh, well, why don't you turn it into a business? And I kind of chatted to a few people about it and uh, it'll lose its shine if I have to do that because all the licensing of alcoholic products and, uh, you know, you're creating this thing that you're not sitting on a Saturday afternoon and enjoying in the sun. You now are relying on it for money. The mindset changes and um, you have to be careful when you do that kind of thing because it can really suck the joy out of um, out of something that you really used to enjoy. That, that's that's exactly what's happened to us. Yeah. Exactly, it's no longer a hobby. It now becomes work, and work is not always fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, on that note, <laughs> if all the books in the world suddenly spontaneously combusted except for one, what would that book be, and why? No pressure. You, you love these trick. You, you love these trick questions. Well, not trick questions, but tricky questions. You know. I had the privilege of of going through an NLP program a couple of years ago. I mean, you you, you know, neurolinguistic program. And one of the concepts that came through was that both myself and Taryn are, are severely analytic, and, and and I use that to the point that it is almost to the point of disability that we will <laughs> analyze the situation. And, and we will analyze and analyze and we will look at all possible outcomes. Mm. And that makes us very, very objective. And, and so a book that I would save, I, I would probably go along the lines of something like a, a, a set of encyclopedias or, or something along those lines. Factual information that will be able to spread knowledge further. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it sounds really, um, I, I want to say self-serving if you want to say that, but an encyclopedia in a, enables you to spread factual information more so than, uh, than I want to say, a, a, a fictional work or something along those lines. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people might say, save Shakespeare's uh, works or for because it's a classic or something. It's, it's a fictional work. In my mind, I would rather save something a reference material of something like that, that that you're able to actually perpetuate a culture of knowledge that's that's one of the most interesting answers i've got to that question because most people (laughs) most people will state a specific book you know something that they've recently read or something that's had an impact on their business or them personally and that kind of thing and then i'll go and read that book but (laughs) i you know you joke um my dad when when we were growing up my dad bought uh from one of these door-to-door salesmen he bought an entire set of encyclopedia uh encyclopedia britannicas and as a child um now i'm going to give away how popular i was as a child i used to sit and read them so i i I especially i especially liked the section on world flags but yeah um (laughs) i've i've read the encyclopedias so i'm not going to um on your basis uh read them again (laughs) that's it that's it you know, like I said, it's 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 a lot of people say yes, it's influential books and that. And you know, again, I want to just say that I think reference uh, an encyclopedia, factual uh, material to me is, is incredibly influ- influential. Mm. Being able to to grow your own knowledge is 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 essential. And if I mean, what's the old saying? If you're not learning, you're dead. Yes, um, yeah, and that's what yeah. it boils down to. If you're not actively out there learning something, reading up about something, then then yes, uh, I don't see that as 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 perpetuating the human race. You you need to be 
growing as, as a human being. You need to be growing as a citizen of society. I see this as, as an individual's responsibility. I, I don't see, yes, once you've left school, schooling should be the responsibility of the, the appropriate body. But after you leave there, you need to be curious enough with your world to actually go out and learn. And in this day and age, there is no way, absolutely zero way, that you have an excuse not to learn. The number of free online training courses that are available to an individual, and it doesn't need to be cert for certification purposes, but you can go and learn. There are these uh, massive online uh, learning campuses. Yes. And it's huge, 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 huge. I'm not even going to mention half of them, but yeah. you can go and learn everything from business through to whatever you want online, and, and literally for free, for, for the cost of the data. If, if anyone does not have the drive to go and do that, I, I, I see that as a big problem, mm. me personally. I completely understand. You know, continued learning, even if it's just something for your own interest, you know, it doesn't have to have a, an outcome attached to it. You know, it's, I'm not going to do this course because it's going to help me make my business better. It's just like, holy crap, I'm interested in marketing. This is so interesting to me or whatever the story is. I mean, um, uh, I think that with the, the rise of social media and instant gratification, people's natural curiosity has kind of started waning and it's very, very sad. No, it is. And, and I wish that we could solve that problem as a society. I mean, I know for a fact that in the companies that I consult with in, in, in the training programs that I provide, I actively encourage further learning to the point that I provide web links for uh, for my candidates and, and for my clients. We, we are actually in the process of, of adding to our 26 courses on our online training platform. And, and we are bringing in as many courses from soft skills through to various different aspects of, of business management into safety, into you name it, solely because if we can provide for the educational needs, then we're solving that. We, we're taking an active step in that. We're actually busy putting together application for the Department of Education to have our online site zero rated, which means that you don't get charged data to access our, our content. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so that that's all that I'm saying is that, you know, if we can provide it free and then access to it is free, Literally, what excuse do you have? Yeah. Uh, I don't have the time. Then you need to make the time. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. No no need to buy the uh, the traveling salesman uh, in Cyclo Britannica anymore. <laughs> no, but that's it. I mean, you've got Google now. Yeah, exactly. So if you don't understand a concept, is, uh, if, if English isn't your first language and you don't understand a word, hell, even if another language isn't your first language, there's so many different opportunities to grow, not just languages, but knowledge as a whole. 100%. <laughs> uh, speaking of knowledge, last question. What is one piece of advice you wish you had received when you started your business? I could probably write a thesis that I would send back in time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't do this. Don't do that. Um, you know, I, I want to you know get real for a second here. And uh, we've been in business for call it thirteen years. And and during that time, 
we've we've paid our school fees. Um, we, we've we've paid about 1.5 million rand in, in school fees during our time, which mm. is it's it's a lot of money for a small business. Yeah. And I think one of the things coming from that was our process management. It it really really sounds stupid, but we lost a lot of money on one project because of a flaw in our job card system, for instance. We lost a lot of money in another one because of the way that our service level agreement was was structured. And so there's a lot of different ways in which that you can look at it. But if I can go back and say to myself, one thing is get your house in order. And and, I mean, we're ISO consultants, we have our ISO system in place. And the simple thing is that should have started at day one. It would have solved a lot of issues for us. I can guarantee that if we had had our current ISO system in place 13 years ago when we started, we would probably have less than 50,000 rands um, worth of school fees. And, and, you know, it it sounds really, I want to say self-serving to your audience that, you know, even if you don't necessarily engage with someone like us as a small business, engaging with a consultant, look at your process and say, okay, this process, I need to do this, 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 and, and map it out on a flow chart. If, if, if it works nicely for you, draw a nice diagram and say, at this point, this is what can happen. So, process flow it'll help you identify strengths it'll help you identify weaknesses so that all ties into your SWOT analysis and then um, it'll also give you an avenue to look and say okay but how can I deal with these um, and that comes into your threats and opportunities yeah again of your SWOT analysis so so a lot of it revolves around that SWOT cool this is this has been a lot of fun I'm going to round off before we go uh, where can people get hold of you okay so we have obviously our website specializedsafety.co.za and that's specialized with this S not a Z so the English spelling not the American spelling so jump on there uh, you can uh, get in contact with us on there. We are on Facebook, uh, Jones Consulting CC. And we have a Twitter account um, where we post a couple of interesting articles. So you can drop us a, a, a line on there. We are Jones Consult ZA. And then um, we have an account on LinkedIn, Jones Consulting. Yeah, I think we're covering the majority of the big social media sites and uh, and then obviously our website. I I would, however, like to just say, if if you have a question, I feel my door is always open and I can try and help where I can. And and if there is something that, uh, that we as a... A business can can guide you in, can help you, point you in the right direction. I will gladly assist where I can. Um, and yeah, like I said, I'm I'm always open for a chat. Um, have a chat, and you know what? Uh, we never know what goes from there. Awesome. Um, and I I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. And um, yeah. I didn't really get to chat to Taryn um, all that much, but uh, thank you yeah. to her as well, and yeah. uh, for for donating your guys' time. And no time is the most valuable yeah. business resource. So thank you very much for donating yeah. it to to little no old me. <laughs> but thank you very much again. And cool. we will definitely stay in touch. Definitely. Thanks, Philip. Cool. Right. Thanks, Philip. Have a good Bye one. Have a good one. Chat to you later. Cheers. Follow the Business of Podcast on my website, megamillist.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to the YouTube channel at Megamillist. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Megan Darcy, M-E-G-A-N-D apostrophe A-R-C-Y. Chat soon. Thank you.